Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. Welcome. This is Jean Oppenheimer. For today's American Cinematographer podcast, we are talking to Conrad W. Hall and about the film Oka. Welcome. Thank you, Jean. Thanks so much. This is a fabulous film and a very difficult one, I think, to shoot. How did you get involved with the project? Um, well, I have a sister who uh, is involved in television and works with reality television. She was uh, involved in the Survivor uh, series. And um, the producer of the film, Jamie Bruce, um, and she had worked together on a prior project. Um, and he was looking for a cinematographer, as, as was Lavinia Courier, the, the director. And my sister said, you know, you ought to check my, my brother out. You know, he's really good. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm not sure that, you know, the kind of work that I guess I had done up until this point was really right for them. But... Uh, I got a chance to meet them. Um, I read the screenplay, loved it. You know, I thought to myself, I, I have to do everything in my power um, to try to get on this film because this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Um, and having you know done a little research on Lavinia and seen her first film, Passion of the Desert, I just thought, wow, this is so right up my alley. And I know um, whatever differences or things that you know we we have in terms of style or whatever, I know we can figure it out. Um, so I met with Jamie and Delavinia and at the end of the at the end of the interview they offered me the picture. So so thankful. Okay, well where was the film shot and uh, how many days, also the month, the months you were there? Um, well you'll have to forgive me since it was about two and a half years ago, but um, this this movie takes place uh, in the Central African Republic. It is about a real person um, living with a real tribe of um, African pygmies. And Lavinia really, really wanted uh, to be as accurate as possible. We could have taken this and shot it in Hawaii um, or Puerto Rico and probably, you know, figured out how to make it work. But she said, you know, this is a story that, that, that lives and breathes and is about this area. And so we need to take our... Our, our crews and our equipment and go to them. Um, so we shot it in an area um, near a place called Zongabai, which is a World Wildlife Federation uh, protected environment, home to uh, I think the largest group of uh, forest elephants um, in all of Africa. And it is, you know, at this you know stage uh, and in time and place, the home to probably the largest um, you know, uh, population of African pygmies um, there. And, and that's where Louis Sarna, who wrote this screenplay, along with Lavinia, and who the story is about, lives. So that's where we went. Did you shoot digitally? Well, it was a question. And like all, um, like all films that have uh, modest budgets, um, and, and this wasn't, you know, a, uh, it was a lot of money, I thought. Um, there's always the question of, you know, equipment, crew, and things like that. And, and so the first question was, you know, what should we shoot this in? And, you know, 16 millimeter came up and digital came up. 
and 35 millimeter came up. And I thought to myself, we are going to one of the most remote places on the planet. Very few people have ever been here, and for sure, very few white people have ever been here. And I thought to myself, you know, this needs to be something spectacular. But I was a little concerned two and a half years ago about how well digital would hold up in terms of the the wear and tear and the elements. You know, we were 900 miles from the equator. It was brutally hot. It was brutally humid. It rains all the time. So I thought to myself, probably not a good idea to take an electronic piece of equipment into the tropics. Um, and for some reason, I just thought as much as I... I love 16 millimeter, and I thought it might be good for a kind of a pseudo-documentary style that Lavinia um, was kind of interested in. I really thought there's something wonderful about 35 millimeter, and it is something that I know and that I can um, predict. And so I opted, I really spent a lot of time thinking about what kind of equipment I should bring down there, and eventually I, I chose you know, the tried and true Panavision camera, um, and, and I took, you know, Eastman Kodak stock. Uh, I just know that those things would last, you know, the 60-day schedule down there with whatever elements that they, that was thrown at us. Um, and a, a lot of things went wrong on that, but I will tell you that there wasn't one bad piece of footage. There was never one time where the cameras broke down, and I'm so thankful that, uh, that I, I chose the, the tools that I did. Well, you were there in the summer, I think, and isn't that the rainy season? Yeah, uh, and Lavinia said, we're going we're gonna to run into some weather here. Um, but yes, we were there from June until September. And um, this and was 2009. 2009, and that is their rainy season. And um, I must say, after you know, been in the the business for as long as I have, and, and I've only been a cinematographer for about ten years now, I have been miraculously lucky with weather. So <laughs> I remember saying to Lavinia and Jamie, I said, "You'd be surprised. You know, I have had such great luck with weather. I bet you we're not going to have much rain at all." And and I know that. Uh, you know, they had the, the biaca, the pygmies were, were, were praying for no rain and so <laughs> forth. And you know what? We had hardly any rain at all. Well, we'll get back to more specifics about the camera, the gear, all that. But how big a crew did you have and how in the world did you convince people to go with you? Well, we weren't allowed to take a lot. <laughs> Um, you know, as much as I realized this was going to be a, a, a really intensive uh, project in terms of the work, uh, because there are no roads, <laughs> um, there are no big trucks, uh, and certainly not a lot of uh, crew members that you could get down in, um, in Africa, uh, I was allowed to take uh, a camera crew, so I had, uh, I operated, and then I had a first assistant and a second assistant and a loader. And was allowed to take uh, two electricians and three grips. Now, even on the the leanest of commercials, the smallest of small little you know one day two day shoots uh, here in town, even uh, that is a very very small crew. But to shoot a sixty day schedule in a jungle with um, eight people. <laughs> it was daunting and um, so I made some phone calls you know um, so I asked uh, Larry Wallace the gaffer that I had worked with for many many years and who's you know been with Alan Davio for uh, decades on incredible films 
Um, and um, I wanted to hire a, a South African uh, key grip because I thought it would be great to have somebody that was familiar with jungle work and, you know, it would be tough. Um, and then I asked Michael Endler, my first assistant here, and they all jumped at the chance. Well, I can't imagine that the accommodations were like being at the Ritz. So can you talk about uh, where you guys lived? And also, I presume there was no electricity. Um, well, we were 12 hours away from the nearest big city, uh, probably three hours away from even the remotest of little, you know, towns with a potential pharmacy or something like that. So we stayed in, a, in a, an area that was kind of developed by a Dutch company that had come in to forest the area. Uh, and out of that, a, a kind of a town formed. Um, I believe the town's called Yamunda. And uh, of course, you know, anytime there's a big industry, anytime there's big industry um, and opportunity, people come from all over. So, uh, you know, people left their villages, people left their homes, and came to this area to live. Um, and so there was the skeleton of a, uh, a lumber mill, and probably I think there was seven or eight uh, structures there, houses, um, and a little sort of like dining area. Which was used to uh, house the people at the you know, the, um, the hierarchy of the lumber mill and so forth, um, but they had left about ten years prior to this, and uh, it was completely overgrown and so forth. So we came in, um, you know, to this village, and the, the production, you know, cleared it out. They fixed up all of the structures. Uh, they hired an eco, kind of an eco tour group that built us a tent city. I believe they built 40 sort of military-style tents um, with hardwood floors and bathrooms and things like that. But uh, this area had no electricity and it had no uh, running water. Well, I'm wondering, how did you, I mean, how did you uh, uh, deal with them, get to know the Bayaka people? I presume that everybody in the tribe was in the film and that they were all non-professionals. Every single one, and I think Lavinia really went out of her way wanting to not only hire as many people in, in the town as possible, but specifically as many Bayaka as possible. I know I say that I had two grips, or three grips and two electricians, but I probably had a, a crew of 20 um, when it came right down to it. Uh, we just tended to use the, the locals, and they were so great at doing everything. Uh, but yeah, Lavinia cast the entire movie um, with local people other than the three principal characters mm -hmm. um, and, you know, a few extra people that were, um, that were hired in New York. Well, in the film, everybody, the children, the adults, they all seem so comfortable in front of the camera. How did, how did you work with them or how did Lavinia work with them to get them to that point? Lavinia hired a, an acting coach from Paris to come down there and really work with the locals. And for five weeks, um, this gal, you know, worked every single day and just bringing cameras, you know, even if there were small video cameras and stuff, and working with people in terms of how to get comfortable not looking into the lens, how to get comfortable, you know, acting to a camera, um, movement and things like that. Um, and, and boy, I, she just did a phenomenal job. But you know, the, the, the great thing was is that Lavinia realized her biggest asset on this would be time. 
And when you do a movie that's probably in the neighborhood of five, six million dollars, that's one luxury that you almost never have. You're shooting 25 to 30 days, usually maximum, because every day is, you know, it, it's an expensive expense. But that was the one thing that she and, and Jamie really figured out earlier on is that we cannot bring a lot of equipment. We can't bring a lot of crew. You know, I need time, Jamie. I need time to be able to do this and to be able to, you know, relate to these people and earn their trust um, and to be able to make mistakes and be able to reshoot these mistakes and so forth. And that was, that was, I, I think, just a, a brilliant move on their part uh, because you can't ask 50 non, no, you know, non, I mean, speaking roles that have never been in front of a camera before. Um, to try to engage in this whole process without going through some learning curves and some, you know, stumbling, uh, going over some stumbling blocks and stuff. And, uh, you know, sometimes we just say, let's, let's just redo that. The film is so beautiful to look at. Uh, one of the things I really loved was at night, the edge lighting that you used. I'm assuming that all of the nighttime scenes uh, were supposed to be lit by moonlight, except for the times there were uh, little... Uh, campfires. Is that correct? And how did you do it? Lavinia has a, uh, a kind of a documentary um, background and there was a there was talk about a kind of a documentary style to this and I really believe that you know this shouldn't be too Hollywood looking even though I know they probably looked at me as being like a Hollywood guy I said this has to look as natural and as organic as possible so I said, it has to be, you know, we've got to make it look like it was moonlit or we have to make it look like it was lit by fire. Otherwise, it's just going to look wrong. Um, and so I was able to bring down a couple of uh, balloons, um, which thank goodness that we had them because, boy, did they put out a lot of beautiful natural light without a lot of manpower. Um, and, um, and then I just used, you know, um, you know tungsten lights as far back as I possibly could um, and at every trick at my disposal we buried light bulbs in the ground and covered them with leaves and things just to be able to give glows to faces um, it was really one of the most challenging lighting you know jobs I've ever done in my life because I knew how badly Lavinia wanted this to be you know as natural as possible and I couldn't agree with her more on that um, just getting that when you've got a, you know, 18 millimeter lens <laughs> and you're seeing the world at night uh, um, was was a big challenge. But uh, my hat's off to, to Larry Wallace, my gaffer, and uh, uh, Jason Santinelli, the, the best boy. They just, they work their tails off. It was amazing, the edge lighting. because You didn't get the sense that there was any source, really, except the moon. And yet you could still see some of the colors that the, you know, the, the people were wearing. It was, it was just beautiful. Also, during the daytime, did you just rely on natural light? Oh, absolutely. I mean... Um, Even in the forest? Yeah, and, and that was one of the reasons why film was so important for me as opposed to digital. Today, I might have thought differently, but um, I, looked, I looked for a long time at Apocalypto because I know that Dean Semler decided to do a kind of a similar, I mean, obviously, much bigger project, but a similar kind of thing where when you're hiking, you know, 
an hour into the jungle and so forth, you know, there isn't going to be no generator there. There are going to be no HMI lights. <laughs> so um, I really trusted um, the, the Panavision lenses, the Primo lenses that I used, and I really, really loved and trusted the Eastman stock. Um, and I used the high speed, the newest high speed. Um, I think it was a Vision 2 stock at that time. And I just realized, you know what? I believe that I can gain exposure in there, and I overexposed so much. You could not, you know, most people would be afraid to, to, um, you know, to, to expose the way that I did, but I literally would, you know, take my hand and I would cup the ball so it was almost black in there. But when you think about it, you're in a canopy of greens, which automatically soak up light. Then you've got an all-African cast, um, so there's no reflectiveness at all. Um, and there's just no way in the world that I could bring a movie light in there. You know, it would have taken forever to try to, to have you know done that. So, um, all of it inside on the day stuff is all natural lighting. I thought that uh, black faces do reflect light. They do reflect light, but they do not reflect exposure. Um, I guess the you know if you put a, if you put a Caucasian person and a black person side by side um, in you know in a shadow area and so forth, the black person if they're not wearing a hat and you know maybe are don't have a lot of hair on there they'll reflect the sky they'll reflect you know anything that has it, um, but but the actual the actual exposure on their faces is negligible just the way that, you know, that light reflects on skin and, and reflects on that color of skin. Uh, the white person wouldn't reflect as much, but they, their face would be exposed much, you know, um, with much greater visibility and so forth. So um, I realized that in order to get an exposure, you know, without hardly any light whatsoever, I was going to have to really, really, you know, max out the, um, the overexposure capabilities of the Eastman stock. Um, and that's just one thing that, you know, Kodak does so well is, you know, it loves to be able to be tortured on the, <laughs> on the overexposure end. Uh, did you do a DI then afterwards? We did. Um, and the interesting thing was, I mean, here we are, uh, you know, 12 hours away from New York City, one flight in a week coming from Paris and from London. So to get our footage out and to get dailies back in, I believe was a three-week process. So I probably only saw dailies three times in the whole picture, you know, the whole time that we were shooting the picture. Uh, there are a couple of shots that really stand out to me. Um, one is that beautiful scene as uh, Larry uh, and a small group of villagers are walking past that lumber yard, I guess, where they're tossing planks of wood and the sun is setting and there's smoke. It was, it was really surreal and dreamlike. Can you talk about that? Gladly. <laughs> because you have never seen somebody so excited about being at exactly the right time, in exactly the right place, with everything working, than I was. Um, I was screaming at the top of my lungs. I was so happy, you know, that everything was coming together. Um, and we had to shoot at a lumber mill that was, uh, I believe, a five-hour drive away from our location. So could you imagine waking up in the morning and, you know, your company is going to location 
five hours away. <laughs> but it was a, really the only uh, lumber mill that was operating and that had all those things. The reality was is that it didn't have some of the elements that we really needed to get them to walk through certain things. So the art department created that whole huge mess of lumber and so forth. That was all created by, by Alex, um, Vivier, I think his name is, um, who is our production designer, and his art team. Um, they trucked all of that stuff in. They created all of that fire and so forth. We picked a location. I picked the time of day. I scouted it. I brought stills and did light studies and so forth. Um, and then, you know, we just, we were able to be there at exactly the right time. Um, and I used a grad, you know, to kind of keep the sky down um, and so forth. But it was just one of those moments where, you know, it finally came together. And, you know, that lumber mill for, for Lavinia really is the bad guy. You know, um, the, the, the Chinese that come in, um, they, you know, they're just doing their, their job you know, in a way. And the, I'm sure that um, the exploitation of the forest, but really just to see the wood, you know, as scrap, as, as this sort of carnage um, was so powerful for Lavinia. That's why she wanted to see trees being cut down. She didn't need to see the people cutting it down. She didn't need to, you know, emphasize the, the the mill itself. She just needed to see the forest being exploited and seeing what happens to these gorgeous trees, which is why you see so many shots of looking up at these trees and so forth, because it's so important for Lavinia. Another shot that I really wondered about was wide shots of the forest, or maybe medium-wide, and then the camera pulled back, but it was like back and back. It couldn't have been... A I don't even know how you get a crane there. Was it a blimp? What was it? It was a little toy helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because um, I really felt that uh, having a perspective of always being in the forest was eventually going to suffocate the audience. And it, the hardest part about a forest, whether it be, you know, pine trees or redwoods or jungle and so forth, is that it's very diff difficult to have it look different. You know, I kept advocating, we need to get, if we can get a helicopter, it would be so great to be able to just get above the canopy, just for an establishing shot, and just to see the, the unbelievable scope of what this actual jungle and forest look like, because you're in it and you go, wow, this is, this is, you know, this is tough going. But then when you go up and you see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of square miles of just the same. It is unbelievable. What? And so we used a toy helicopter that was, uh, I don't mean toy, but uh, oh, it's, it's a remote control op uh, helicopter that our production, um, our one of our producers from Paris had, uh, had used before. Um, boy, was I a bit skeptical about that. As designed, the shot was going to start with a dolly move pulled back. And then we had a crane, and the crane was going to take that, you know, kind of we were going to match uh, the, the last image that we completed with the dolly to the first image of what would be eventually a big, huge crane move. And we had a crane, you know, we, let's, let's put it this way. We had, you know, requested a crane 
and so forth. And the, the idea of the crane was to get us far enough away so that the helicopter could continue that move and not begin to start blowing the, the, the trees and everything away. Unfortunately, uh, those tools never happened. Um, and eventually they said, well, why don't we just use this uh, remote helicopter with a little teeny uh, Airy 2C on it. And um, I was very skeptical. Um, and I think it works, <laughs> okay. Um, you know, it wouldn't have been my, my first choice to do it, but that was all we had in the budget, you know, when all was said and done and so forth. And I thought the folks that brought this from Paris did a great job. Um, and, you know, we made it work. And by the time you cut, you know, get up into the canopy, it's great. And then I think you cut to a, a stock shot of, um, of, you know, the forest up there and pretty spectacular. Well, given the amount of undergrowth and just the forest, I mean, there, there are trees and there's all those sort of twisty limbs and branches. How did you actually manage to shoot with the camera? And how much of it was handheld? There were a lot of dolly shots, I think. I know when I first um, sat down with Lavinia and Jamie to sort of do my visual presentation, I showed them pictures of this BBC documentary, Planet Earth. And, you know, I had been looking at Emerald Forest and the mission and things like that. And I said, you know, I know that they had already done a documentary on Louis Sarno's life um, that had already taken place. I said, so that's already been done. And I thought, you know, this is a this is a once in a life lifetime opportunity, not only for us, but for a lot of the people that are going to see this, to see these people in their, you know, situation, but in a dramatic piece. And I thought. I think that this should be something that is very unobtrusive to the audience. Rather than take handheld cameras and make it look documentary, I just thought, what if we just, you know, kept the camera kind of quiet and photographed the beauty of this and the, you know, and, and just looked as an observer. Um, kind of like the, the BBC did with Planet Earth and with so many National Geographic, you know, things where you just, you see the grandeur and the spectacle of it all but you don't see the filmmaker's attempt at something. And that was probably the biggest area where Lavinia and I kind of disagreed, was she felt that she needed to influence that feel um, of it being documentary. And, and I kept thinking, first of all, there's nobody that's gonna be in a seat that has ever seen this before. If anything is going to be, you know, documentary, it's just going to be people appreciating something that they've, and that's what I love about documentaries is that, um, and what I, what I loved about what Lavinia did so much was that she just, you know, she kind of evoked the uh, Bayaka and their natural, you know, state. She didn't ask them to do anything that they wouldn't normally do. Um, and she took advantage of every possible, you know, when the Jenga comes out of the forest, that was something that, although it might have been scripted um, as a, you know, dance or whatever, when she actually found out that this was a real forest spirit coming out and a real, uh, you know, dance and presentation and sort of festival that they were going to put on, immediately we switched gears and that's what we shot that day. I, I, I must say, uh, there wasn't anything that I gave our grip department that they couldn't, you know, uh, they couldn't accomplish. Um, remember, we, did, we weren't allowed to bring a lot of stuff down, so things that, you know, like a dolly, and we used mostly uh, a kind of a doorway sled dolly, which is basically some uh, skateboard wheels, which we put a piece of plywood on, um, 
and and we would put a pair, you know, a set of sticks on that and so forth. Because to lug a dolly into the forest just not going to happen. Um, and but we, you know, in order to clear the land, in order to level that dolly and so forth, takes a lot of, of work. And so uh, the first key grip that I had, Bobby Gray. Um, they, they literally made every apple box that we had down there. They made every piece of cribbing. They made every wedge. They made two 12-foot scaffoldings, all out of wood from this lumber mill. So we had to literally create every sandbag that we had, we had to make there. Now, also, was everything an actual location? I mean, did they live in that little village? I mean, I assume the forests were the forests, but did you, uh, were they all natural locations? Yes, um, that village that you saw that you know most of the movie takes place in um, was already there. The, the house that uh, that Larry eventually lives in and so forth was built by uh, Alec and the, and the art department. And then there was another sort of like uh, a kind of like a lean-to uh, shady area where a lot of the uh, chorus and some of the, the people would just to get out of the shade, that was also built separately because the, the village well is literally right behind that structure. So we couldn't build it on top of the well, but we had to build it and block the well at the same time. Um, but everything else was, you know, was natural. Those leaf huts that, um, that you see in that the women of this, you know, of this tribe actually built these huts, it takes them about 45 minutes um, to put one of those things up, and the women do almost all of the work. That's what it seemed like. I was almost ask all of that. the work. <laughs> well, I wondered about like uh, the hut that um, that Chris lives right. in. So, did that have wild walls? It did, and I asked for them. I mean, I don't think it was uh, a big concern of Lavinia, but I said, you know, because uh, she really wanted it to be real size. And the little area that you and I are in right here, which is probably, you know, maybe seven by five, is about the size of one of these huts. So I thought, you know, to do 20 pages of, of scripted dialogue with as, sometimes as many as, you know, three, four, five people in them and not be able to bust out a wall to be able to get a camera. <laughs> I don't know how to do that. I said, you know, without these wild walls, Lavinia, this entire, you know, these entire scenes are going to be nothing but tight head close-ups. Even with a wide angle lens, I won't be able to get back. So um, I asked for three of the walls to be wild, and, um, and Lavinia allowed me to have two of the walls, of the walls wild. But boy, we pulled them out, um, you know, just about every scene. And you know, it really, I, I said, I promise you, we'll always feel like we're inside of this hut. You know, I'm never going to get back on some long lens and, you know, show, you know, 20 people in the same shot. I'll pan and I'll do whatever. But um, just for the, first of all, just, you know, to be able to allow the air to come in. Because, you know, when you're inside of a mud hut, you know, on a 90 degree day, I mean, we were just dripping wet <laughs> anyway. Um, and thank goodness we were able to pull those walls because, you know, without that, we would just be toast. Another shot that I thought was neat is when Larry is walking and right before the suitcase opens and a truck comes up and it's the mayor. Right. And he's sitting in the car and there's this wonderful, almost like orange light 
behind him. How did you do that? Well, um, you know, Lavinia said, I would love, uh, you know, to do a dolly shot, you know, where we kind of meet him as he drives up. And I said, you know, we've only seen this guy driving around. We've seen him kind of from the back a little bit. Um, and, you know, to a certain degree, we really, really haven't been introduced to this character yet. So I said, what if we just kept, you know, the, the move, the dolly move in, in like a complete silhouette? So literally, we're, you know, I mean, usually it would be dolling into a tight head close-up with light on the face. And I said, and what if he just, you know, reached off and like turned on a, uh, like a, a lamp that you would, or, you know, a light that would be on a ceiling of a car or whatever, and that revealed his, you know, lit face and so forth. So um, the first thing I said to myself was I kind of have to create a source. So I had a fire outside, which lit the back of the, um, of the car, and it's also what happens at night. It's the only source of light that these people have. You know, there is no generators. There's no electricity in any of these villages. So, like, when we went in to, you know, on Saturday night to go party, you had to bring a flashlight with you because that town was pitch black. Um, and so all I did was I glowed the back window of the uh, car, um, and he was just absolutely a black cutout until he turned on that light. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get into that, he switches on, he goes, I'm the mayor. <laughs> um, you know, I, it's not nearly, I, I know my favorite shot in the movie, um, for sure, without a doubt, um, other than the, you know, the miraculous uh, scene where the wood is being burned and that kind of thing, was a shot that Lavinia had dreamed up. And uh, these people are walking from, uh, uh, from the bus all the way back to their little village and so forth. And the, she wanted to kind of do a sort of a, a scene where you kind of see everything, you know, that this uh, terrain has to offer. Um, and one point where they're going past a police station and she said, well, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to, you know, not see them, but somehow know that they're there. And I went, hmm, I wonder what that means. <laughs> um, and I said, well, what if we created shadows of them on, you know, kind of like a Disney, you know, movie. So um, we created a shot where a, a, a police officer or a security guy has kind of fallen asleep on the porch of uh, um, where the mayor's office is and so forth. And there's this wall in the background. And uh, we have this wonderful shot of this whole line of, of pygmies walking. And then, of course, there's this big shadow of Chris after that. Um, and that's easily, I think, my favorite shot in the movie because uh, it's, it's so evocative of the way that, um, you know, film and photography can tell a story without doing the obvious. You know, the obvious would have been, there they go in the background. But, um, you know, to have moonlight or to have something where they actually cast a shadow on a wall at night, and uh, the, my gaffer just lit it beautifully, um, and it just worked out great. You relied on natural daylight, the, the sun. Did you need to take, um, well, you didn't need diffusion, did you need to take flags or, or anything, or you just really went with what was there? No, when, when I say it's all natural light, um, the only thing that I didn't use was a movie lamp. Now, there was plenty of motion picture equipment in that jungle because um, I still felt that I needed to shape the light. Um, in order to um, 
to protect a scene from being in sunlight and being outside of sunlight, you know, and when you're in the jungle, you, the, the sun is poking itself in and out, which isn't really going to affect the overall picture. But if the sun's hitting the person on the top of the head and then, you know, on the, on the next piece of coverage, you don't have that kind of got a problem. So I would, uh, I brought in all kinds of bounce, you know, material. Um, usually I use a, a, a material called ultra bounce, which is pretty common. Um, and, and whatever I could do to, to collect sunlight or, you know, shiny boards, anything that I could do to create a kind of a nice little edge and just to cry, try to craft some shape to the light, I would do. So when you see a lot of the images in that forest and so forth, there's a lot of work being done that hopefully doesn't look like it's being done. Um, and I, I love negative fill. You know, one of the things that I find is, well, how do you get, you know, light and dark when basically it's just all flat outside? Um, so one of the things I've learned through working with, you know, people like my dad and Jordan Cronin with and Vilmos and everybody is the use of negative fill. Um, which is it basically just to take a big black and bring it in off screen, um, which takes away a lot of the ambient light from one side of a face, allowing the ambient light to hit another. So rather than use a movie light to create a half light, what you do is you subtract the light from one side of the face, and now you have a half light. Um, and as often as I could do that, uh, I would try, because I really felt that, you know, giving the, the, the actors uh, and the people in the movie um, uh, a sense of drama and a, and, and a, and a sort of a, uh, a handsomeness about them, even though it was natural, I thought was super important. Um, and then also taking care of the girls because, you know, they're, I, I thought these, these women should look beautiful. <laughs> um, and we were shooting in the village, um, you know, we were completely exposed to the sunlight. So a lot of times I would just fly, you know, um, uh, some kind of silk overhead or, a, you know, a light grid overhead just to take the harshness away from, you know, the, the people. And um, it would be harsh in the background, but I, I didn't want it to be harsh. So that was probably the biggest difference between shooting a straight-out documentary and the movie that I eventually tried to shoot was that I, I felt I am not going, you know, 24 hours away from Hollywood, you know, 12 hours away into a jungle, you know, in a place where most people have never seen and have this picture just be documented. Um, and part of, the, you know, I think part of the, the reason that um, there was some, you know, issues about all the equipment that I asked for and so forth was that I don't think that they understood you know, how natural things could look, but, but at the same time have a kind of an organic beauty about them if you just take care of certain things. Um, and, you know, the great thing with the 60-day schedule is that I had plenty of time to, to do this and so forth. And I think the result, you know, turned out pretty good. I think it's wonderful. Um, how is the film being released? What aspect ratio? Well, I love widescreen, and almost every film that I've shot, I've always, you know, been a huge proponent of, you know, stretching the, the screen and the experience for the audience out as wide as possible, except for this film. And it was the first time that I'd ever really come into a situation where I was going to have an actor who was 
probably 6'3", interacting with people that were four foot six. And I thought to myself, you know, as much as I love that 2-4-0 aspect ratio, it's going to be kind of difficult to get those, you know, the disparity between those two heights into this image, um, you know, very often. And, you know, there's the, the, the rest of the movie would have been great as a 2-4-0 aspect ratio, but I decided that we should shoot this one eight five simply because I knew so much of the movie would be, you know, Larry or Chris Marshall on one end and the Bayaka on the other end, you know, like Will Chamberlain and, and, and Willie Shoemaker in the same, you know, in the, in the same frame. Had you done research before going so that you knew about some of the political problems? I did. And, you know, I, all I went uh, when I, before I took the job, I mean, I said, you know, this is great and I would love to do it. And then I, I said, Jamie, I said, here's all I'm asking. I said, you know, I'm, I'm up for any adventure and so forth. But um, I said, it doesn't look good. <laughs> the research isn't necessarily, you know, very rosy and stuff. So I'm definitely willing to, I guess, you know, brave the, the potential uh, danger out there. But I said, all I ask is that, you know, you do everything in your power to guarantee our personal safety and our health. Because we, you know, you're not going to see on the call sheet, here's the local, you know, hospital and so forth. So um, I said, I cannot ask people to come on this adventure with us if those two things are not absolutely etched in stone guaranteed. And he assured me that there were. And they did everything in their power to make those things happen. So um, even though, you know, we slept at night and, you know, we had a security team of people with machetes right below us. Honestly, I slept with my, you know, door locked every single night because I just didn't know at one point whether those people would say, hmm, <laughs> so I wonder how much money that guy has up there. I had, I had personally, you know, asked and, and invited these people to come into this situation. And I don't know, for me personally, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm a bit responsible for the crew. You know, I'm kind of the head of the department. Um... Lavinia and, and, and Jamie had so many other things to worry about that none of us had to worry about. I mean, we were held hostage one morning, you know. We were, the, the entire camp was held hostage by a group of, you know, uh, I believe they were Bantu that came in with AK-47s and machetes, basically extorting, uh, you know, money from our company. And this wasn't the only time, uh, I would say, that Jamie probably spent most of his, you know, time there just putting out one unbelievably chaotic fire after another. Um, so whatever we were going through creatively, it paled in comparison to what Jamie, Lavinia, Norbert, who was the African um, producer, what they had to go through. Do you think this is the biggest adventure you've ever had in your life? For sure. And, you know, everything in you know, uh, if I looked at this rationally, every, you know, thing about this would have caused me probably not to go. I'm leaving my family who I love, my wife and my kids, you know, for six months. I'm going to a place, you know, where I don't know what's going to go, what's going to happen to me there. My personal safety, uh, I, I can only bring a handful of people. Uh, the equipment, which I know I would have loved to have had, you know, more of, I can't. Um, 
there's no trucks there, so we were literally, you know, we we had probably 16, 20, you know, pickup trucks, four-wheel drive pickup trucks, just to haul gear and people around. Everything in my, you know, rational being would say this is not a good thing to do. So Stick around. Because one of the things that has always attracted me about this business was the ability of having these experiences that very few people will ever have the chance of doing. One of the areas I've never been to is Africa. And I thought, when Lavinia and Jamie offered me this, I thought, I better, you know, think carefully about this because this may be my one and only chance to ever have an experience like this. And that was, you know, when I sat down and, and talked about it with my wife and my kids, you know, we made the decision to do this. Because I, I always love to involve my family in, you know, important decisions that affect them too. Um, I just said, I'll never get this chance again. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and despite the, you know, the, the pitfalls and the things that may not necessarily be, um, you know, perfect about this, um, I'll be kicking myself for the rest of my life if I don't do this. And that was the reason why I took it, you know, is really just, just for the sheer adventure of it, not knowing, you know, really what that adventure would be. I mean, I, I can't believe how much I actually learned about my ability because I was forced to do things that, I mean, the, the generator that we asked for, you know, for the, the first, and for the movie, um, it never showed up. And for the first three weeks, we had all of these interiors that I had to light <laughs> with a little teeny putt-putt, Honda putt-putt, like a, you know, one of those igloo th type things that you would take a, for a tailgate party. That was my generator for the first three weeks of the movie. And we had, you know, interiors to shoot and things like that. So I learned, you know, how to make the best lemonade you've ever <laughs> had in your life. And I'm so grateful that I did, was able to bring the people that I did because we could not have done this without the experience and the, the, the tenacity of, of all of our, you know, powers and everybody, I mean, camera people, grip people, electrical, we all sat together and we said, how are we going to solve this problem? Uh, if I, I suppose if I had to, you know, kind of wrap up everything that we've talked about, um, I, I mean, I look back on this and I go, you know, I'm so proud of the job that everybody did because the, the, the conditions were as difficult as, as you could possibly imagine, um, and the attitudes that everybody had was just so you know spectacular, especially dealing with you know sickness and health issues and all kinds of things. Um, you know, I remember my dad talking about um, what he loved most about you know movie making and stuff, and he said, you know, when all is said and done, it's it's being in that dark room, and seeing the lights come on that screen and seeing what you did. And he said, it's just irreplaceable, that gratification of like, oh my gosh, it worked. You know, it, I am really good. <laughs> and, you know, I think all of us kind of have our doubts um, as, as storytellers and as cinematographers or editors or publicity people, whatever, you know. Um, you know, you always wonder how, you know, are you doing a good job? Are, you know, are you really pulling your weight? And, the one, thing, one wonderful thing about film is you, you do get a kind of a immediate gratification um, 
that a lot of other businesses don't give you the chance. You may never see the product that you were involved in. You never, you know, may see the widget that you, you know, helped develop that went into a computer or something. But, you know, we could take a look at that film and uh, and see, if, you know, without any reservation, um, how good we did. <laughs> This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.